Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Before we get started this evening, I've got some unfortunate news to share. Our good friend, longtime editor, and overall unsung hero of Tales to Terrify, Scott Silk, has decided to step down as editor. Helping to keep a podcast like ours running smoothly from week to week is no small task. Organizing story submissions, assigning narrators, and wrangling story sheets, not to mention all the other minutiae of making a podcast run, is a lot of work. In fact, the lion's share of stories you've heard over the last several years have been hand-selected by Scott. The love and attention Scott's poured into this podcast has been nothing short of incredible, although he'd probably never be comfortable taking credit for it. Scott, I know I speak for all of us when I say thank you for everything you've done for Tales to Terrify. We wish you the best of luck. Fortunately for us, children of the night, the talented Seth Williams has already stepped up to keep things running smoothly and the terrifying tales flowing freely to your ears. But he could use some help. If you're a lover of horror and the macabre, and have a passion for stories that scintillate through sound, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at talestoterrify at gmail.com with editor in the subject line and a bit about yourself and we'll share some more details. Now, let's get back on the road, shall we? This week, we find ourselves traveling the highways of Arizona. Of all the landmarks and attractions to visit in the state of Arizona, it seems only fitting that we make our stop at the aptly named Superstition Mountain. Located just east of Phoenix, Superstition Mountain is home to a number of tall tales and unexplained events. But most are tied to, or perhaps caused by, the legend of one of the most famous gold mines in history, the Lost Dutchman Mine. Trouble with the gold mine, though, no one's conclusively been able to find it. Or those who have often don't remain living for terribly long afterward. Some have devoted their entire lives to searching the hills for it. Others have paid the price of their life in pursuit of its treasures. Superstition Mountain is actually a collection of rough peaks and cliffs, plateaus and hoodoos. Due to the rugged, challenging terrain, huge sections of the region are still largely unexplored. And there's nothing like the unknown to spark an adventurous spirit into action. 
In fact, Spanish conquistador Francisco Vázquez de Coronado, who you might remember from a few episodes ago, explored the region in his quest for the seven golden cities of Cibola. The Apache claimed there was a rich deposit of gold in the mountain, but also warned Coronado that the thunder god called the mountain home and would protect it from trespassers at all costs. It wasn't until his men started disappearing in broad daylight, mere footsteps from camp, only to be discovered decapitated, that Coronado began to take that warning a little more seriously. The terrified survivors left the mountain with little more than their lives, and Coronado, on their way out, dubbed the place Monte Superstition. A later expedition by Don Miguel Peralta was much more successful at uncovering the gold, although keeping it was another story. Peralta began to mine a rich vein of the mineral that he discovered on the mountain, but the local Apache weren't thrilled about the Spanish presence on their sacred land. As the Spaniards were packing to flee, Peralta's men, who numbered in the hundreds, were ambushed and massacred to the man. Fast forward to the aforementioned Dutchman, Jacob Waltz, who, for the record, was actually German, not Dutch. It isn't certain how he and his partner Jacob Weiser discovered the mine, either stumbling across it or, the more popular story, being gifted a map by saving a Mexican Don in a knife fight, who just happened to be a direct descendant of Peralta. But when Waltz and Weiser began showing up in Phoenix, and buying rounds of drinks for the house with the purest gold nuggets the community had ever seen. That's the sort of thing people begin to notice. It wasn't long before Waltz began showing up alone, though, his saddlebags heavier than ever with gold. Wiser, it seems, had disappeared without a trace. Suspicious? Nah. Many people tried following Waltz when he would disappear into the hills, but without fail he would give them the slip. This went on for years, until the Dutchman was as old and wizened as a Hollywood prospector from an old western. Waltz died in 1891, but the huge sack of rich gold ore found under his deathbed made sure the legend didn't die with him. For more than a century, people have been searching for gold and losing their lives in mysterious ways in Superstition Mountain. From gruesome shootings and decapitations to boulders being pushed on unsuspecting hikers by unseen forces to sudden violent outbursts making friends turn on one another, there are no lack of stories about people meeting a gruesome end on the mountain in search of gold. Sure, it could be that the terrain is simply an easy place for violent criminals to hide out and attack from. But what's particularly surprising is how many of those who were killed were also found still in possession of high-grade, unprocessed gold nuggets. Is there something malicious lurking in the dusty hills of Superstition Mountain? Are the restless spirits of the hundreds who have died on the mountain exacting revenge on the living? Or maybe it's the ghost of the Dutchman himself, protecting his find. I don't know about you, but whatever lies hidden beneath Superstition Mountain, I don't think I'd risk my life for a few shiny rocks. Now, let's say we dig up some stories of our own. Our first story of the evening comes from Penny Tailsup. Penny Tailsup is an Alaskan author who writes, narrates, and illustrates horror stories. Penny is often found lurking around the No Sleep subreddit, and also runs a small YouTube narration channel where she narrates her own work. Although she is new to the horror scene, she has published two short stories in the book Monstronomicon, and is featured in several upcoming anthologies. More of her work can be found on her website, pennytailsup.com. Children of the night, join me for Penny Tales Up's Eavesdropper, first published on the No Sleep subreddit in August 2018.
I'm an introvert with a counterintuitive hobby. Eavesdropping. It's not an ethical hobby. That's the thrill, isn't it? To know the secrets of a hundred strangers. Rest assured, though, their secrets are safe with me. Doesn't make it okay, but I consider it a victimless crime, really. Less than a crime. Prank. Harmless. Till it wasn't. Recently, I met a man I've come to call Mr. Soap. I can't describe him in a satisfying way. I wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. Couldn't tell you the color of his hair or even his skin. Trying to remember is like picking up an extra slippery bar of soap. Can't hold on to the details. They slip away, leaving nothing but suds. However, he did leave an impression. I can't forget his eyes, what he said to me that night. I guess, to sum it up, Mr. Soap is a man with eyes and a mouth. It's the only way I can put it. He isn't meant to be remembered. Predator's camouflage. Maybe you've talked to him or something like him. There's no way to know. Not unless it wants you to know. I was at my bar. My favorite haunt. A place where alcohol brings up a backwash of honesty. I'd snag my favorite corner booth, wore my muted Bluetooth headphones, and played mindless phone games between fizzy sips of ginger ale. If anyone tried to talk to me, I'd pretend not to hear them. In other words, perfect Friday night. My ears picked through threads of conversation, seeking something sordid to placate my interest. I dove in and out of discussions, swimming through the contents of confabulations like it was an Olympic sport, until one voice cut through the noise. What would you trade your soul for? The voice had a velvety baritone with an air of confidence that belied the bizarre nature of his question. I took note of this strange pickup line, pausing to listen with rapid attention. Eternal life, of course. If I don't die, I never have to pay up, right? A female titter followed the question, her voice pleasantly soft and slurred. You are as clever as you are beautiful. The man chuckled with an edge of condescension. Surprised, I glanced over, nearly dropping my ginger ale when I met his waiting gaze. The man's eyes seemed to smile, though his mouth was an impassive line. The woman he'd been flirting with left without a word, smiling with a glass in hand to rejoin a group of giggling young women. A swing and a miss? I quickly looked away, pretending to be preoccupied by my phone. I hated being noticed. I preferred to be a fly on the wall. At most an extra, background to the drama that played around me. Once again, I began sifting through the conversations, but I was pulled back by that same voice from before. What would you trade your soul for? My head swiveled in the direction of his voice. This time, the man, Mr. Soap, he wasn't at the bar, but leaning his elbow on a table, speaking to a muscular man who'd lost his shirt and stared, glassy-eyed, at the table. I want to be rich and famous, the shirtless man said, not looking up. Classic. No one ever wants that. His sarcasm was obvious, but Mr. Soap's eyes still hadn't left mine. I watched Transfix as he scribbled something down on a notebook I hadn't noticed before. There was no point in pretending I hadn't been listening in. I was thoroughly unnerved. I tried to flag down the server for the check, but she didn't notice. Walked right by. Compelled by nervous impulse, I looked back at Mr. Soap. He was closer than before, yet no more distant. I realized with a start that each time I looked, he was one table closer, closing the distance between us. We were separated by one table, locked in a staring contest. I never saw him blink. In fact, his eyes, whatever color they were, had no reflective qualities. The light didn't catch in his irises or have that same glossy wet quality as eyes do. His dilated pupils were a dull darkness, one that couldn't be explained by the need for eye drops. My line of sight was broken by the server, who took the seat across from him, not seeming to notice the table was already preoccupied by some indistinct demon. I couldn't see his face, but I still heard him ask the very same question. What would you trade your soul for? There were some things you know without having to be told. What I knew in that moment was that I couldn't let that man reach me. I fumbled in my purse, fishing out a few bills to leave on the table. If I hadn't had cash, I would have tried to dine and dash. That's how desperate I was to leave. I didn't dare my eyes to wander, moving towards the door. What would you trade your soul for? The same question. A phantom outline hovered dark in my periphery, a darkness that bid I turn around. I reached for my phone, intending to turn on music to block out that voice and the answers that followed. Silence. I'd left my phone on the table. 
I know it was stupid, but these days losing a phone is like losing a finger, and that's putting it lightly. The table was mere footsteps away. I'd grab it and go. I hurried back, but Mr. Soap was waiting for me there. My phone was there, right where I left it, daring me to pick it up. The man didn't say a word at first, watching me with an unsmiling mouth and those strange eyes. I found myself locked in place, an unwilling competitor in yet another staring contest, until he gestured at me and said, Sit. I did. My own will was irrelevant. I was compelled to comply. Running was no longer an option. How about we start with an apology? My tongue was heavy with nerves. I heard something I shouldn't, something beyond the realm of even the juiciest gossip. I didn't understand it, but that didn't matter. I knew that in my core. I'm sorry. That's better. Mr. Soap reached across the table and pulled out my earbuds. They came out with an uncomfortable pop. And that made me reach up to rub my ears. It was clear the conversation was far from over. Before I could even think better of it, I asked, Aren't you going to ask me? Ask you what? He knew. Even without asking, this exchange was entertaining for him as it was terrifying for me. What I would trade my soul for? My voice was stilted and unsure. I didn't want him to ask. I didn't want to know the answer. I instinctively understood that this question couldn't go unanswered as though it were an implicit law of the universe. No. His abrupt answer left little chance to feel relieved. Mr. Soap spoke matter-of-factly, adding, You've nothing to trade. A remark which jolted my senses of relief into an unsettled uncertainty. What do you mean? Mr. Soap laughed low, pausing to decide if he'd answer my question. To answer was simultaneously an act of generosity and cruelty. To keep up with production, souls are a lot smaller than they used to be. Many humans don't even have one, about half the population. In fact, you don't even need it. It only matters when you die. I didn't want to believe him, but I did. I hung on every word. He let the implication sink in, pausing for dramatic effect. Of course, that makes you inconsequential to me. Although I don't appreciate your rudeness, no one likes an eavesdropper. I'm sorry about that. I was only interested in gossip, not an existential crisis. Can, can we forget this ever happened? I employed earnestly, eager to end the conversation. I'd apologize. I'd have nothing to give him. Why couldn't he leave it at that? Do you want to know how to tell? Mr. Soap continued as though he hadn't heard my question. Tell what? I asked, hauntingly hesitant. Who has a soul and who doesn't? I don't want to know. No. I honestly didn't. That was forbidden knowledge, that kind that came with consequences I couldn't begin to comprehend. My answer was irrelevant. I'll tell you anyways. It's nice to have a real conversation for once. However one-sided it might be, your kind were never much for conversation. My kind? Despite my desperate unwillingness to talk, I found myself asking anyways. Introverts. The soulless. Introverts? Is that really the distinction? I dubiously shook my head, unsettled by the thought. It's the most common symptom. Makes my job easier. Your job for trading for souls? That earned a laugh. He shook his head. <laughs> no, it's above my pay grade. I'm just a scout looking for leads. I find the better-sized souls, see what sort of trades would interest them, and then give the leads to someone in sales, so to speak. What are you? You've already guessed that answer to that. I'm what religions would call demon. My disguise isn't perfect, but you wouldn't be able to spot someone from a higher order. Your eyes. Those blank, unblinking eyes, even up close, I could see nothing in them. No light. No reflection. I live in very dry climate, as you might imagine. I leaned back in the booth, closing my eyes and mashing my fingers to my temple. A headache had already formed and bile threatened to bubble up in every exhalation. What's going to happen to me? I ripped off the band-aid, flinching in fear as I anticipated his answer. When you die or right now? I was speechless at the question and honestly too terrified to know the answer to either. However, at least I could infer from his reply. I wasn't going to die. Not right then. You'll be punished, of course, but when you die, 
you'll rot in the ground. That's about it. Or you'll be ash, depending on your arrangements. I tried to swallow the lump in my throat. I was regretting everything, but regret isn't a time machine. My actions weren't undone by my remorse. What punishment? Your ears. What? I had to have misheard him. I'll have your ears. He fingered the napkin-wrapped cutlery in a thoughtful way, as though he were debating between the knife and the fork to do the deed. I immediately clapped my hands over my ears, squeezing my eyes shut as if it would do me any good. No! The punishment should fit the crime. He stood up and walked over, sliding into the booth beside me. If you're going to listen to things you shouldn't, it's poetic justice, isn't it? Now lower your hands unless you want me to take them as well. My hands dropped down to my sides, dead weight, but the choice hadn't been mine. Mr. Soap licked his index finger, flexing it for a moment. He didn't break eye contact, but did offer a grin before he suddenly plunged his finger into my right ear. I cringed in revulsion, disgusted by the sticky wetness of his finger. Didn't stop there. The demon dove his finger deep into the canal, perforating the eardrum and beyond. I couldn't even scream, but I could feel everything. His finger moved like a snake, creeping and curling into the folds of my brain. I didn't know how I didn't die or go deaf. I do know that it was agony beyond anything I'd ever felt or would ever feel again. Seconds stretched like hours, but it did end after the tip of his finger erupted from the other ear, wiggling as if to say hello. In one ear, out the other. <laughs> Mr. Soap laughed at his joke, abruptly jerking his hand away. He proceeded to use the napkin on the table to wash up, dipping in a cup of ice water and humming to himself as he mopped up the surprisingly little blood. He even used the tines of the fork to clean underneath his fingernails. What? <sighs> I managed to sputter out, still trying to process what exactly had happened. Unsurprisingly, I couldn't think straight. You are my ears now, was all he said before he excused himself from the table and left. He took my earbuds with him, swinging them jauntily at his side. I don't know how long I sat there, but eventually, I made it home, even convinced myself it was a dream that my brain hadn't been rewired by a demon's index finger. Life continued as normal for a while, but I didn't go eavesdropping again for a long time. Eventually, the old itch came back, and I had to scratch it. I'd rationalized that Mr. Soap was a figment of my guilty conscience. When you do something you know is bad, it's bound to manifest as a guilty nightmare now and then, right? Wrong. Same bar, same booth, same hobby with a gnawing tension competing with denial. I closed my eyes and sorted through the clouds of conversation for a gem when I heard the voice whisper against my ear, Go ask them. I could feel his arid breath. I swiveled my head to see. Mr. Soap wasn't sitting next to me. I let out a sigh of relief and sagged back into my seat, but my relief was short-lived. You're my ears, my dear, or have you forgotten? The women you were just listening to? Go ask them. I found myself standing, walking on stiff legs to a cluster of middle-aged women at the bar. You can probably guess what I asked. Um, what would you trade your soul for? I spent that night and every following Friday scouting out leads for Mr. Soap, forced to follow his every directive, asking the same question over and over. My voice would vibrate with the words. I'd always get an answer, usually followed by the demon's sarcastic commentary. His punishment was a life sentence. I'll always have his voice in my ear. But it didn't end there. He sent me a gift for my hard work. One day, I found a square cardboard box sitting on my porch. Scribbled in black sharpie were the words, Soul, choose wisely. I wasn't meant to laugh, but I did. Trust the demon to give me a soul, only so he could take it back later. He's already shown me his cards. I know exactly what he's trying to do. For the soulless, there is no afterlife. There won't even be blackness. I'll simply blink out of existence. As terrifying as that might sound, it's actually a blessing. I can't imagine the heaven that awaits demons accomplice, unwilling or otherwise. Nice try, you slippery bastard. I laughed, wiping tears from my eyes. 
The box collects dust on my bookshelf. Mr. Soap already has the rest of my life. I won't let him have my death, too. That was Penny Tailsup's Eavesdropper, as read by Andy Ochoa. Andy is a 20-something-year-old with a penchant of avoiding her fellow man in favor of the furry, four-legged types. Her hobbies include listening to spooky podcasts while hiding in the dark and occasionally burying a body or two when she isn't coloring. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram. Links are in the show notes. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Next up is the third installment of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Arthur Machen was a Welsh author and mystic of the 1890s and early 20th century. He is best known for his influential supernatural fantasy and horror fiction. His novella, The Great God Pan, has garnered a reputation as a classic of horror, with Stephen King describing it as maybe the best horror story in the English language. Children of the Night, listen with me to Part 3 of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Five, the letter of advice. Do you know, Austin? said Villiers, as the two friends were pacing sedately along Piccadilly one pleasant morning in May. Do you know that I am convinced that what you told me about Paul Street and the Herberts is a mere episode in an extraordinary history? I may as well confess to you that when I asked you about Herbert a few months ago, I had just seen him. You had seen him. Where? He begged of me in the street one night. He was in the most pitiable plight, but I recognized the man, and I got him to tell me his story, or at least the outline of it. In brief, it amounted to this. He had been ruined by his wife. 
In what manner? He will not tell me. He would only say that she had destroyed him, body and soul. The man is dead now. And what has become of his wife? Ah, that's what I should like to know. And I mean to find her sooner or later. I know a man named Clark, a dry fellow, in fact a man of business, but shrewd enough. You understand my meaning, not shrewd in the mere business sense of the word, but a man who really knows something about men in life. Well, I laid the case before him, and he was evidently impressed. He said it needed consideration, and asked me to come again in the course of a week. A few days later, I received this extraordinary letter. Austin took the envelope, drew out the letter, and read it curiously. It ran as follows. My dear Villiers, I have thought over the matter on which you consulted me the other night, and my advice to you is this. Throw the portrait in the fire. Blot out the story from your mind. Never give it another thought, Villiers, or you will be sorry. You will think, no doubt, that I am in possession of some secret information, and to a certain extent that is the case. But I only know a little. I am like a traveller who has peered over an abyss and is drawn back in terror. What I know is strange enough and horrible enough, but beyond my knowledge there is depths and horror more frightful still, more incredible than any tale told of winter nights about the fire. I have resolved, and nothing shall shake that resolve, to explore no whit farther, and if you value your happiness, you will make the same determination. Come and see me by all means, but we will talk on more cheerful topics than this. Austin folded the letter methodically and returned it to Villiers. It is certainly an extraordinary letter, he said. What does he mean by the portrait? Ah, I forgot to tell you I have been to Pole Street and have made a discovery. Villiers told his story as he had told it to Clark, and Austin listened in silence. He seemed puzzled. How very curious that you should experience such an unpleasant sensation in that room, he said at length. I hardly gathered that it was a mere matter of the imagination, a feeling of repulsion, in short. No, it was more physical than mental. It was as if I were inhaling in every breath some deadly fume, which seemed to penetrate to every nerve and bone and sinew of my body. I felt racked from head to foot. My eyes began to grow dim. It was like the entrance of death. Yes, yes, very strange, certainly. You see, your friend confesses that there is some very black concept connected with this woman. Do you notice any particular emotion in him when you were telling your tale? Yes, I did. He became very faint but he assured me that it was a mere passing attack to which he was subject. Do you believe him? I did at the time, but I don't now. He heard what I had to say with a good deal of indifference, till I showed him the portrait. It was then that he was seized with the attack of which I spoke. He looked ghastly, I assure you. Then he must have seen the woman before. But there might be another explanation. It might have been the name, and not the face, which was familiar to him. What do you think? I couldn't say. To the best of my belief, it was after turning the portrait in his hands that he nearly dropped from the chair. The name, you know, was written on the back. Quite so. After all, it is impossible to come to any resolution in a case like this. I hate melodrama, and nothing strikes me as more commonplace and tedious than the extraordinary ghost story of commerce. But really, Villiers, it looks as if there was something very queer at the bottom of all this. The two men had, without noticing it, turned up Ashley Street, leading northward from Piccadilly. It was a long street, and a rather gloomy one. But here and there a brighter taste had illuminated the dark houses 
with flowers and gay curtains and a cheerful paint on the doors. Villiers glanced up as Austin stopped speaking and looked at one of these houses. Geraniums, red and white, drooped from every sill, and daffodil-colored curtains were draped back from each window. It looks cheerful, doesn't it? he said. Yes, and inside is still more cheery. One of the pleasantest houses of the season, so I have heard. I haven't been there myself, but I've met several men who have, and they tell me it's uncommonly jovial. Whose house is it? A Mrs. Beaumont's. And who is she? I couldn't tell you. I've heard she comes from South America, but, after all, who she is is of little consequence. She is a very wealthy woman, there's no doubt of that, and some of the best people have taken her up. I hear she has some wonderful claret, really marvellous wine, which must have cost a fabulous sum. Lord Argentine was telling me about it. He was there last Sunday evening. He assures me that he had never tasted such a wine, and Argentine is, you know, is an expert. By the way, that reminds me, she must be an oddish sort of woman, this Mrs. Beaumont. Argentine asked her how old the wine was, and what do you think she said? About a thousand years, I believe. Lord Argentine thought she was chaffing him, you know, but when he laughed, she said she was speaking quite seriously and offered to show him the jar. Of course, he couldn't say anything more after that. But it seems rather antiquated for beverage, doesn't it? Why, here we are at my rooms. Come in, won't you? Thanks, I will. I haven't seen the curiosity shop for a while. It was a room furnished richly, yet oddly, where every jar and bookcase and table, and every rug and jar and ornament, seemed to be a thing apart, preserving each its own individuality. Anything fresh lately? said Villiers after a while. No, I think not. You saw those queer jugs, didn't you? I thought so. I don't think I have come across anything for the last few weeks. Austin glanced around the room from cupboard to cupboard, from shelf to shelf, in search of some new oddity. His eyes fell at last on an odd chest, pleasantly and quaintly carved, which stood in a dark corner of the room. Ah, he said, I was forgetting. I've got something to show you. Austin unlocked the chest, drew out a thick quattro volume, and laid it on the table, and resumed the cigar he had put down. Did you know Arthur Mayrick, the painter, Villiers? A little. I met him two or three times at the house of a friend of mine. What has become of him? I haven't heard his name mentioned for some time. He's dead. You don't say so. Quite young, wasn't he? Yes, only thirty when he died. What did he die of? I don't know. He was an intimate friend of mine and a thoroughly good fellow. He used to come here and talk to me for hours, and he was one of the best talkers I have met. He could even talk about painting, and that's more than can be said of most painters. About eighteen months ago he was feeling rather overworked, and partly at my suggestion he went off on a sort of roving expedition, with no very definite end or aim about it. I believe New York was to be his first port, but I never heard from him. Three months ago I got this book, with a very civil letter from an English doctor practicing at Buenos Aires, stating that he had attended the late Mr. Mayrick during his illness, and that the deceased had expressed an earnest wish that the enclosed packet should be sent to me after his death. That was all. And haven't you written for further peculiars? I have been thinking of doing so. You would advise me to write to the doctor? Certainly. And what about the book? It was sealed up when I got it. I don't think the doctor had seen it. It is something very rare? Mayrick was a collector, perhaps. No, I think not. Hardly a collector. Now, what do you think of these Ainu jugs? They are peculiar, but I like them. But aren't you going to show me poor Mayrick's legacy? Yes, yes, to be sure. The fact is, it's rather a peculiar sort of thing, and I haven't shown it to anyone. I wouldn't say anything about it if I were you. There it is. Villiers took the book 
and opened it up haphazard. It isn't a printed volume, then, he said. No, it is a collection of drawings in black and white by my poor friend Merrick. Villiers turned to the first page. It was blank. The second bore a brief inscription, which he read. Sile per diem universus, nec sine horore secretus est. Lucet nocturnus signibus, chorus egipanum undice personatur. Audientur e cantus tibiarum, e tenetis symbolarum per orum meritamam. On the third page was a design which made Villiers start and look up at Austin. He was gazing abstractedly out the window. Villiers turned page after page, absorbed in spite of himself, in the frightful Walpurgis night of evil, strange, monstrous evil, that the dead artist had set forth in hard black and white. The figures of fauns and satyrs and ajapans danced before his eyes. The darkness of the thicket, the dance on the mountaintop, the scenes by lonely shores, in green vineyards, by rocks and desert places passed before him, a world before which the human soul seemed to shrink back and shudder. Villiers whirled over the remaining pages. He had seen enough, but the picture on the last leaf caught his eye as he almost closed the book. Austin! Well, what is it? Do you know who that is? It was a woman's face, alone on the white page. Know who it is? No, of course not. I do. Who is it? It is Mrs. Herbert. Are you sure? I am perfectly sure. Poor Mayrick, he is one more chapter in her history. But what do you think of the designs? They are frightful. Lock the book up again, Austin. If I were you, I would burn it. It must be a terrible companion, even though it be in a chest. Yes, they are singular drawings. But I wonder what connection there could be between Merrick and Mrs. Herbert, or what link between her and these designs. Ah, who can say? It is possible that the matter may end here, and we shall never know. But in my opinion, this Helen Vaughan, or Mrs. Herbert, is only the beginning. She will come back to London, Austin. Depend on it, she will come back, and we shall hear more about her then. I doubt it will be very pleasant news. 6. The Suicides Lord Argentine was a great favorite in London society. At twenty he had been a poor man, decked with the surname of an illustrious family, but forced to earn a livelihood as best he could, and the most speculative of moneylenders would not have entrusted him with fifty pounds on the chance of his ever changing his name for a title and his poverty for a great fortune. His father had been near enough to the fountain of good things to secure one of the family livings, but the son, even if he had taken orders, would scarcely have obtained so much as this, and moreover felt no vocation for the ecclesiastical estate. Thus he fronted the world with no better armor than the bachelor's gown and the wits of a younger son's grandson, with which equipment he contrived in some way to make a very tolerable fight of it. At twenty-five, Mr. Charles Aubernon saw himself still a man of struggles and of warfare with the world. But out of the seven who stood before him in the high places of his family, three only remained. These three, however, were good lives, but yet not proof against the Zulu assegais and typhoid fever. And so one morning, Albernon woke up and found himself Lord Argentine, a man of thirty who had faced the difficulties of existence and had conquered. The situation amused him immensely, and he resolved that riches should be as pleasant to him as poverty had always been. Argentine, after some little consideration, came to the conclusion that dining, regarded as a fine art, was perhaps the most amusing pursuit open to fallen humanity. And thus his dinners became famous in London, 
and an invitation to his table, a thing covetously desired. After ten years of lordship and dinners, Argentine still declined to be jaded, still persisted in enjoying life, and by a kind of infection had become recognized as the cause of joy in others, in short, as the best of company. His sudden and tragical death, therefore, caused a wide and deep sensation. People could scarcely believe it, even though the newspaper was before their eyes, and the cry of mysterious death of a nobleman came ringing up from the street. But there stood the brief paragraph. Lord Argentine was found dead this morning by his valet under distressing circumstances. It is stated that there can be no doubt that his lordship committed suicide, though no motive can be assigned for the act. The deceased nobleman was widely known in society, and much liked for his general manner and sumptuous hospitality. He is succeeded by... etc., etc. By slow degrees the details came to light, but the case still remained a mystery. The chief witness at the inquest was the deceased's valet, who said that the night before his death, Lord Argentine had dined with a lady of good position, whose name was suppressed in the newspaper reports. At about eleven o'clock, Lord Argentine had returned and informed his man that he should not require his services till the next morning. A little later the valet had occasion to cross the hall and was somewhat astonished to see his master quietly letting himself out at the front door. He had taken off his evening clothes and was dressed in a Norfolk coat and knickerbockers and wore a low brown hat. The valet had no reason to suppose that Lord Argentine had seen him, and though his master rarely kept late hours, thought little of the occurrence till the morning when he knocked at the bedroom door at a quarter to nine as usual. He received no answer, and, after knocking two or three times, entered the room, and saw Lord Argentine's body leaning forward at an angle from the bottom of the bed. He found that his master had tied a cord securely to one of the short bedposts, and, after making a running noose and slipping it round his neck, the unfortunate man must have resolutely fallen forward to die by slow strangulation. He was dressed in the light suit in which the valet had seen him go out, and the doctor who was summoned pronounced that life had been extinct for more than four hours. All papers, letters, and so forth seemed in perfect order, and nothing was discovered which pointed in the most remote way to any scandal, either great or small. Here the evidence ended. Nothing more could be discovered. Several persons had been present at the dinner party at which Lord Argentine had assisted, and to all these he seemed in his usual genial spirits. The valet, indeed, said he thought his master appeared a little excited when he came home, but confessed that the alteration in his manner was very slight, hardly noticeable indeed. It seemed hopeless to seek for any clue and the suggestion that Lord Argentine had been suddenly attacked by acute suicidal mania was generally accepted. It was otherwise, however, when within three weeks three more gentlemen, one of them a nobleman and the two others men of good position and ample means, perished miserably in almost precisely the same manner. Lord Swanley was found one morning in his dressing-room, hanging from a peg affixed to the wall and Mr. Collier Stewart and Mr. Harry's had chosen to die as Lord Argentine. There was no explanation in either case. A few bald facts, a living man in the evening, and a body with a black, swollen face in the morning. The police had been forced to confess themselves powerless to arrest or to explain the sordid murders of Whitechapel, but before the horrible suicides of Piccadilly and Mayfair, they were dumbfoundered for not even the mere ferocity which did duty as an explanation of the crimes of the East End could be of service in the West. Each of these men, who had resolved to die a tortured, shameful death, was rich, prosperous, and to all appearances, in love with the world, and not the acutest research should ferret out any shadow of a lurking motive in either case. 
There was a horror in the air, and men looked at one another's faces when they met, each wondering whether the other was to be the victim of the fifth nameless tragedy. Journalists sought in vain for their scrapbooks, for materials whereof to concoct reminiscent articles, and the morning paper was unfolded in many a house with a feeling of awe. No man knew when or where the next blow would light. A short while after the last of these terrible events, Austin came to see Mr. Villiers. He was curious to know whether Villiers had succeeded in discovering any fresh traces of Mrs. Herbert, either through Clark or by other sources, and he asked the question soon after he had sat down. No, said Villiers. I wrote to Clark, but he remains obdurate, and I've tried other channels, but without any result. I can't find out what became of Helen Vaughan after she left Paul Street but I think she must have gone abroad. But to tell the truth, Austin, I haven't paid much attention to the matter for the last few weeks. I knew poor Harry's intimately, and his terrible death has been a great shock to me. A great shock. I can well believe, answered Austin gravely. You know, Argentine was a friend of mine. If I remember rightly, we were speaking of him that day you came to my rooms. Yes. It was in connection with that house in Ashley Street, Mrs. Beaumont's house. You said something about Argentines dining there. Quite so. Of course you know it was there Argentine dined the night before, before his death. No, I had not heard that. Oh, yes. The name was kept out of the papers to spare Mrs. Beaumont. Argentine was a great favorite of hers and it is said she was in a terrible state for some time after. A curious look came over Villiers' face. He seemed undecided whether to speak or not. Austin began again. I never experienced such a feeling of horror as I did when I read the account of Argentine's death. I didn't understand it at the time, and I don't now. I knew him well and it completely passes my understanding for what possible cause he, or any of the others for that matter, could have resolved in cold blood to die in such an awful manner. You know how men babble away each other's characters in London? You may be sure any buried scandal or hidden skeleton would have been brought to light in such a case as this. But nothing of the sort has taken place. As for the theory of mania, that is very well, of course, for the coroner's jury, but everybody knows that it's all nonsense. Suicidal mania is not smallpox. Austin relapsed into gloomy silence. Villiers sat silent also, watching his friend. The expression of indecision still fleeted across his face. He seemed as if weighing his thoughts in the balance, and the considerations he was resolving left him still silent. Austin tried to shake off the remembrance of tragedies as hopeless and perplexed as the labyrinth of Daedalus, and began to talk in an indifferent voice of the more pleasant incidents and adventures of the season. That Mrs. Beaumont, he said, of whom we were speaking, is a great success. She has taken London almost by storm. I met her the other night at Fulham's. She is really a remarkable woman. You have met Mrs. Beaumont? Yes, she had quite a court around her. She would be called very handsome, I suppose, and yet there is something about her face which I didn't like. The features are exquisite, but the expression is strange. And all the time I was looking at her, and afterwards when I was going home, I had a curious feeling that very expression was in some way or another familiar to me. You must have known her on the row. No, I am sure I never set eyes on the woman before. It is that which makes it puzzling, and to the best of my belief I have never seen anyone like her. What I felt was a kind of dim, far-off memory, vague but persistent. The only sensation I can compare it to is that odd feeling one sometimes has in a dream, when fantastic cities and wondrous lands and phantom personages appear familiar and accustomed. 
Villiers nodded and glanced aimlessly round the room, possibly in search of something on which to turn the conversation. His eyes fell on an old chest, somewhat like that in which the artist's strange legacy lay, hid beneath a gothic scutcheon. Have you written to the doctor about poor Mayrick? he asked. Yes, I wrote asking for full particulars as to his illness and death. I don't expect to have an answer for another three weeks or a month. I thought I might as well inquire whether Mayrick knew an Englishwoman named Herbert, and if so, whether the doctor could give me any information about her. But it's very possible Mayrick fell in with her at New York, or Mexico, or San Francisco. I have no idea as to the extent or direction of his travels. Yes, and very possible that the woman may have more than one name. Exactly. I wish I had thought of asking you to lend me the portrait of her which you possess. I might have enclosed it with my letter to Dr. Matthews. So you might. That never occurred to me. We might send it now. Hark! What are those boys calling? While the two men had been talking together, a confused noise of shouting had been gradually growing louder. The noise rose from the eastward and swelled down Piccadilly, drawing nearer and nearer, a very torrent of sound surging up streets usually quiet and making every window a frame for a face, curious or excited. The cries and voices came echoing up the silent street where Villiers lived, growing more and more distinct as they advanced, and, as Villiers spoke, an answer rang up from the pavement. The West End Horrors! Another awful suicide! Full details! Austin rushed down the stairs and bought a paper and read out the paragraph to Villiers as the uproar in the street rose and fell. The window was open, and the air seemed full of noise and terror. Another gentleman has fallen a victim to the terrible epidemic of suicide which for the last month has prevailed in the West End. Mr. Sidney Crashaw of Stokehouse, Fulham, and King's Pomery, Devon, was found, after a prolonged search, hanging dead from the branch of a tree in his garden at one o'clock today. The deceased gentleman dined last night at the Carlton Club and seemed in his usual health and spirits. He left the club at about ten o'clock and was seen walking leisurely up St. James Street a little later. Subsequent to this, his movements cannot be traced. On the discovery of the body, medical aid was at once summoned but life had evidently been long extinct. So far as it is known, Mr. Crashaw had no trouble or anxiety of any kind. This painful suicide, it will be remembered, is the fifth of the kind in the last month. The authorities at Scotland Yard are unable to suggest any explanation of these terrible occurrences. Austin put down the paper in mute horror. I shall leave London tomorrow, he said. It is a city of nightmares. How awful this is, Villiers. Mr. Villiers was sitting by the window, quietly looking out into the street. He had listened to the newspaper report attentively, and the hint of indecision was no longer on his face. Wait a moment, Austin, he said. I have made up my mind to mention a little matter that occurred last night. It stated, I think, that Mr. Crashaw was last seen alive in St. James Street shortly after ten. Yes, I think so. I will look again. Yes, you are quite right. Quite so. Well, I am in a position to contradict that statement at all events. Crashaw was seen after that, considerably later indeed. How do you know? because I happened to see Crashaw myself at about two o'clock this morning. You saw Crashaw. You saw you, Villiers. Yes, I saw him quite distinctly. Indeed, there were but a few feet between us. Where in heaven's name did you see him? Not far from here. I saw him in Ashley Street. He was just leaving a house. Did you notice what house it was? Yes, it was Mrs. Beaumont's. Villiers, think what you are saying. There must be some mistake. How could Crashaw be in Mrs. Beaumont's house at two o'clock in the morning? Surely, surely you must have been dreaming, Villiers. You were always rather fanciful. 
No, I was wide awake enough. Even if I had been dreaming as you say, what I saw would have roused me effectually. What you saw? What did you see? Was there anything strange about Crashaw? But I can't believe it. It is impossible. Well, if you like, I will tell you what I saw, or, if you please, what I think I saw, and you can judge for yourself. Very good, Villiers. The noise and clamor of the street had died away, though now and then the sound of shouting still came from the distance, and the dull, leaden silence seemed like the quiet after an earthquake or a storm. Villiers turned from the window and began speaking. I was at a house near Regent's Park last night, and when I came away, the fancy took me to walk home instead of taking a hansom. It was a clear, pleasant night enough, and after a few minutes I had the streets pretty much to myself. It's a curious thing, Austin, to be alone in London at night, the gas lamps stretching away in perspective, and the dead silence, and then perhaps the rush and clatter of a hansom on the stones, and the fire starting up under the horse's hooves. I walked along pretty briskly, for I was feeling a little tired of being out in the night, and as the clocks were striking two, I turned down Ashley Street, which you know is on my way. It was quieter than ever there, and the lamps were fewer. Altogether it looked as dark and gloomy as a forest in winter. I had done about half the length of the street when I heard a door close very softly, and naturally I looked up to see who was abroad like myself at such an hour. As it happens, there is a street lamp close to the house in question, and I saw a man standing on the step. He had just shut the door, and his face was towards me, and I recognized Crashaw directly. I never knew him to speak to, but I had often seen him, and I am positive that I was not mistaken in my man. I looked into his face for a moment, and then, I will confess the truth, I set off at a good run and kept it up till I was within my own door. Why? Because it made my blood run cold to see that man's face. I could never have supposed that such an infernal medley of passions could have glared out of any human eyes. I almost fainted as I looked. I knew I had looked into the eyes of a lost soul, Austin. The man's outward form remained, but all hell was within it furious lust and hate that was like fire, and the loss of all hope, and horror that seemed to shriek aloud to the night, though his teeth were shut, and the utter blackness of despair. I am sure that he did not see me. He saw nothing that you or I can see, but what he saw I hope we never shall. I do not know when he died, I suppose in an hour or perhaps two, but when I passed down Ashley Street and heard the closing door, that man no longer belonged to this world. It was a devil's face I looked upon. There was an interval of silence in the room when Villiers ceased speaking. The light was failing, and all the tumult of an hour ago was quite hushed. Austin had bent his head at the close of the story, and his hand covered his eyes. What can it mean? he said at length. Who knows, Austin? Who knows? It's a black business, but I think we had better keep it to ourselves, for the present, at any rate. I will see if I cannot learn anything about that house through private channels of information, and if I do light upon anything, I will let you know. That was part three of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan, as read by me. Link to my personal page is in the show notes. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell, for now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, 
so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editor, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we darken your dreams with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.